day for those, those kind words. Well, I hope you all had a great 4th of July celebration. I always enjoy the holiday. I enjoy professional fireworks displays a lot. But uh, my problem is I live in the middle of many amateur pyrotechnic engineers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're not just talking about an occasional firecracker or cherry bomb. I'm talking about heavy incoming mortar fire. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> I've always got to keep an eye out on my property. It gets a little crazy. But uh, one blessing uh, yesterday was that the neighbor with the biggest collection, I refer to him as the Guns of Navarone, uh, <laughs> Apparently, he must have been down the shore because I did not take in any fire from the north. It was uh, concentrated in the south. You know, when I was given the uh, opportunity to pick the subject for my message today, I knew that I wanted to explore the area of apologetics. The word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, and that means to give a defense or give a reason for what you believe. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter tells us to make a defense, I'm sorry, make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Apologetics has played an important role in my spiritual growth. When I was around 30 years old, I realized that I couldn't intelligently answer a lot of the questions that I was thinking about and that I was being asked. For example, how can I trust that the Bible is true? How do I know that Jesus Christ is God? And what about all the pain and suffering in this world? I realized that I couldn't even think biblically about some of these questions and answers. And I went to find out how I could do that. And that led me to a study if, in apologetics. Because I realized if the reason to believe in Jesus is simply that my belief would get me through tough times and enhance my life, then my belief would simply be a psychological tr crutch. And it really wouldn't matter what religion I believed in as long as it enhanced my life. It would basically be a consumer-based choice. But I found out that biblical living is much more than just enhancing my life. Biblical living is living your life to glorify God as best you can. And it's also based on historical fact. And that's important, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, he walked this earth, he was fully God, and he was fully human. He died, and he rose again from the dead. The Bible even points out the importance of the historicity. In 1 Corinthians 15, which is a great chapter to read on our faith, Paul tells us the historical truth of Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, and that Christ's resurrected body was witnessed by over 500 people, most of whom were still alive at the time Paul wrote the letter. So certainly they would know whether he was telling the truth or not. He went on to say that if Christ was not truly raised from the dead, then our faith is worthless and we should be pitied above all else. So Christianity hinges on the historical reality of Jesus Christ, his death burial, and resurrection. Well, the historical truth is a topic that has been covered from this pulpit before, most recently in a series that Dave did in January entitled, I Have a Friend. And those sermons are available on the chapel website. And if you haven't heard those sermons, I highly recommend them to you. They're, they're great 
apologetic sermons on our faith and how we can trust in the Bible. But today, I'd like to explore a specific question. Is Jesus the only way to God? It certainly fits in with Dave's charge to me. It's not a sermon that will please man, but it will please God because it's the truth. The question creates controversy among any group of people that it's raised. And according to a recent survey by the Barna Group, 43% of Americans in general agreed with the statement, it doesn't matter what religious faith you follow because they all teach the same lessons. More alarmingly, 25% of Christians who identify themselves as born again agreed that all people eventually are saved or accepted by God. Well, does God have anything to say on this subject? And in fact, he does. Jesus stated, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, you should always be suspicious of someone who builds an argument on a single Bible verse. There's more than a few pastors on TV who rip verses out of context and try to make them say something that the Bible doesn't say. So let's take a look at the context of this passage that I just read you. Jesus and the apostles are in the upper room. And Judas has just left the room to go and betray Jesus. And Jesus has washed the apostles' feet as an example of what it is to be a servant leader. Jesus then begins what is known as the first of his two farewell discourses. He's been with these men for three years, discipling them, and he still has some things that he wants to tell them. He knows that his death is imminent, but he has things that he must say. So let's take a look at uh, the first verse of chapter 14 in the Gospel of John. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. But Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here Jesus is quickly heading towards the agony of the cross, and he knows it. John tells us that he's troubled in both mind and spirit. Yet it's Jesus who's doing the comforting. The disciples are confused. They don't know what's going on. Their Messiah looks like he's going to be killed, murdered. But Jesus puts their focus back on God. They are to calm their hearts by putting their trust in God, by putting their trust in Jesus. He tells them that he's preparing a place for them in his father's house, an obvious reference to heaven. He tells them that they will go there too and that they already know the way. But Thomas is taking Jesus in a very worldly sense. He's thinking that Jesus is talking about some physical location that they're going to after dinner or something like that. And tells him that we don't even know where you're going, Jesus. How could we know the way? You see, Jesus is talking about spiritual things. And Thomas is still thinking about worldly things. Because Jesus just told him where he was going. He's going to his father's house. 
He's going to heaven. So Jesus answers that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. The emphasis of this passage is certainly on the way. That phrase is mentioned three different times in just a few sentences. Jesus is stating that he, and he alone, is the way to eternal life. This is only possible because Jesus is the truth of God and the life of God. Notice Jesus said that he is the truth. He didn't say he has the truth or he knows the truth. He said, I am the truth. He's God's word. He's God's self-revelation, full of grace and truth, made into flesh, who walked among us. Fully God and fully human. And Jesus is life itself. Physical life through his participation in creation and eternal life imparted as a gift through him. Jesus not only shows us the way to eternal life, he is the way to eternal life, our Redeemer. Well, that night Jesus was arrested and the next morning he stood before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And that's a question that we need to look at right now before we go further. You know, we can start with a few simple definitions. Reality is the way things are. And belief is the way that we understand things to be. And truth is that which corresponds to reality. It's when our belief matches reality, then there is truth. One other term we need to understand is the law of non-contradiction. The opposite of true is false. Well, that seems very elementary. Opposite ideas cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. The earth cannot be both round and not round at the same time. It sounds like such a simple idea, but today in this culture, we hear so many statements that contradict themselves because they are stating two opposites at the same time especially when it comes to religious beliefs or the nature of truth. And the easiest way to detect these contradictions is just to apply the claim of the statement to itself. For example, if someone were to say to me, there is no truth, I would ask them, how do they know that? Because that statement itself claims to be a statement of truth, of objective truth. Or no one knows the truth. If no one knows the truth, how could the speaker know even that? You see, it's always the speaker who talks about rel relativity or no objective truth. They always want their statements or the books they write to be read and understood as objective truth. They just don't want to admit your truth. All truth is relative. I love when people say that to me because I ask them if they're absolutely sure if all truth is relative, right? It's an absolute statement. Or you can't know the truth about God. There's a statement that claims to know something about God. Right? I mean, how do you know that you can't know something about God? On what authority are you stating that? And then my favorite, you shouldn't judge. Well, isn't that statement itself a judgment? It's telling me what I should be doing. And so when you listen to statements and, and you think critically about what the statement actually means and is saying, you'll find that there are a lot of statements that we hear every day that refute themselves, and all we need to do is ask the right question to the speaker. So in summary, contrary beliefs are certainly possible, 
but contrary truths are not possible. You can believe everything is true, but everything can't be true. An objective truth can't be denied without being affirmed. In other words, if I say to you there is no such thing as objective truth, I just used objective truth to tell you that there's no such thing as objective truth. You just can't do it. It's the law of non-contradiction. <clears throat> Yet the majority of people in our culture, including many Christians, are religious pluralists, which requires believing in opposing truth claims. Religious pluralism is the belief that all or many religions are true, that all ways lead to heaven. All sincere people will be saved in the end. Even though different religions worship different gods who could not possibly coexist, given the law of non-contradiction. Oprah Winfrey gives us a great example of this belief. She stated, I am a Christian who believes that there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. And she's not alone. A lot of statements have been made like that. Uh, if you search YouTube, you could find a clip from her show where uh, a Christian woman stands up and, and takes uh, objection to that and, and says, well, if you're a Christian, what do you do with the fact that Jesus said he's the only way? And she was shouted down pretty ruthlessly by Oprah right on, on her show. And uh, it's up there on YouTube. It's been a couple of years since I've seen it. But a great illustration behind pluralist thinking is the story of the six blind men and the elephant. And the story goes that six blind men surround an elephant. And each one is feeling a different part of the elephant. One fear feels the tusk and thinks he's got a spear. Another feels the side of the elephant and thinks he's up against the wall. Another grabs the tail and thinks he's got a rope. Another one grabs the leg of the elephant <clears throat> and thinks he has a tree trunk. So the pluralist would say, each of these men are experiencing the same reality, but they have different interpretations of that reality. And religion is just like that. Each religion experiences a different part of the reality of God. Well, this sounds very inclusive and warm until we realize that the pluralist believes that everyone's blind except him. He's the only one that can see the truth of God. It's rather an arrogant stance when you think about it. The truth is, all those men are wrong. Only the person who realizes that it's an elephant he's touching is the one who knows the truth. And it's the same thing for God. You know, we want objective truth in so many areas of our life. When we go to the doctor, we want him to prescribe the right medicine for us. When we go to a bank, if we have $5,000 in the account, we don't want the teller to tell us, well, you know, I feel like you only have $50 today, so I'm going to have to bounce that check on you. If we ask for directions, we want the absolute truth. We want to know where we're going. We want the directions to take us there, not someplace else. So if, if we look for objective truth in so many areas of our life, then why not about the beliefs of God? If God exists, he does have attributes. And if someone believes an attribute is different, it's got to be wrong. Objective truth tells us so. You know, I think of the bumper sticker that reads, Coexist. And, and each letter is a different religion's symbol. I'm sure some of you have seen it. <clears throat> you know, in this multicultural country, we all need to learn how to coexist with our neighbors, to live peacefully among people who look differently than us, 
who think differently than us, then believe and believe differently. It's vital for this country's peace that we do so. But let's not be fooled into thinking that all religions are true. It's just impossible. For example, let's just look at what a few of the major religions have to say about the way to salvation. In Christianity, you are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. The Muslim believes that salvation is by belief in Allah, his prophet Muhammad, and good work. Hinduism, it's by overcoming karma and reincarnations with good work. Buddhism, it's by the cessation of desire through the Eightfold Path. And humanism is by education in this life because there is no afterlife. How could these all be true at the same time when they all contradict each other? And a lot of them are worshiping different gods even. So they're mutually exclusive. They can't all be right. And yes, all religions are exclusive. They believe what they believe and they believe that anything that contradicts them is not true. You know, the world today teaches tolerance, and I've already, as I've already said, we need to live peaceably in this country with others who believe differently than us. But the Bible does not teach tolerance. You can't find it in there. And I'll tell you why. It's too weak a word. What does tolerate your neighbor mean? Tolerate your neighbor means to put up with your neighbor. Is that what Jesus taught us? No, Jesus taught us something much more radical. He taught us to love our neighbors as ourselves and to pray for our enemies. Much more radical idea than tolerance. As a matter of fact, it's so tough, one can only hope to start to achieve that through the Holy Spirit living within inside us. Without supernatural power, we could never fulfill that commandment. And yet that is at the heart of Christianity. Love God, love our neighbors. So is Christianity exclusive? Yes, it is. The Bible is very clear that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given to which men must be saved. Acts 4.12, and it's all over the Bible. Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. On the other hand, Jesus' ministry and teaching was radically inclusive. Christianity welcomes all. It's the most inclusive religion. There's no qualifications. Everyone's a sinner, and everyone matters. For example, think of the role of women in Christ's ministry and the early church. And to really understand how different that was from the culture, you have to take your mind out of 21st century America and put yourself back into first century Jerusalem, where women were second-class citizens. They weren't even allowed to testify in a court of law because their testimony was deemed worthless. And yet, when you read the Gospels, you see how important women were to Jesus' ministry. When you read Paul and his writings to churches, and he thanks all the saints and the people who have been working hard for the ministry, there's always women included and, and mentioned for what they've been doing. As a matter of fact, women were the first to witness the resurrected Christ. 
Now, that's also a great argument for the truthfulness of the gospel. Because if a bunch of guys were writing some fictional myth, do you think they'd write it like this? Well, Jesus was killed, and all of the guys were really scared. So we hung out together, shivering and being cowards in this upper room, while the women garnered up enough courage to go out to the tomb to care for Jesus. And they were the first ones to witness Jesus risen from the dead women whose testimony wasn't even allowed in a court of law. So why would they write that? There's only one reason they would write that. Because it was the truth. They were recording history, not myth. That's why when Dave called me up, he called Diane up as well. Because we're ministry partners. We're equals. The Bible tells us that in Christ, there is no Gentile, there is no Jew, no woman, no man, there are no distinctions among us. All are seen equally in God's eyes. It's the most exclusive religion there is. Salvation is available to all. If we look at Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Revelation gives us a picture of heaven, and when it does, it talks about the great multitude of every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. And of course, John 3.16 tells us that for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him there are no qualifications to that. There's no extra work we have to do. Whoever puts their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will be saved, period. Christianity is not just a religion. It's a relationship with God. It's trusting in Jesus and what he already did on the cross, not on what you can do for yourself, not even on how Jesus can make your life better. It's the dependence on the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead. So there is one way to the Father, and that is Jesus Christ. But there are many ways to Jesus. There's as many ways to Jesus as there are followers of Jesus Christ. And that's what I love about our baptism services. You get to hear all the stories of how Jesus came into people's lives and how he worked in their lives and how they came to put their trust in him. So there's nothing that we have to do to gain access to the Father. Jesus has already done all the work in his suffering and resurrection. We just need to trust in Jesus' finished work. And that's the truth. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen. We'll have members of our prayer team up front for anyone who would like to pray, whether it's something going on in your life or whether you'd like to find out more about trusting in Jesus. Would you please rise and join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day that gives us a glimpse into your glory. And thank you for providing the way to spend eternity with you. Please give us the wisdom 
and boldness to proclaim the good news and truth that is Jesus Christ. By your strength and for your glory alone. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you very much.